You can have a seat, and good morning. If we haven't met before, my name's Rob, and I'm so glad you're here. And, uh, you know, in the Bible, it talks a lot about joy. I don't know if you've figured this out, but in, like, Psalm 118, it says that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's this, it's this invitation, but it's almost a command. And then later in uh, the New Testament, in Thessalonians, it says that we should always be joyful. Um, we should never stop praying, and we should be thankful in all circumstances. Is that something that is true for you? To just choose joy every time that you are around. Now, Philippians even goes further and says, Rejoice always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. So these words of celebrate and be glad and rejoice, joy, they're all, they're all part of this little tiny word with such immense depth. And probably for the last six weeks, I have heard more people talk about joy or getting their joy back, as it says in, um, in Psalm 51, restore the joy of my salvation, or the joy of your salvation, God, that, that I just figured while we're in between these series, this would be a great time to just stop and look at what God has to say about joy. So, I mean, what does joy look like? What does it feel like? For a couple people, um, whether you're new grandparents or whether you have a new baby, uh, I, I swiped one of your pictures, asked first, you know, joy looks like this, doesn't it? I mean, I just looked across and I got this immediate grin on my face and I'm like, oh, it's, it, but it's, it's more than just this feeling, but sometimes a feeling is a great place to start because there's this new life and this, this miracle and that brings joy. Although sometimes I think joy can also look like this. Now, this might look a little peculiar to you, so it might need a little more explanation. Um, I didn't bring it for show and tell because it's sort of a weapon, but we're in the Grand Canyon area, and my son gets, sees this uh, obsidian bone knife, and he just goes, he gets obsessed with it. He's like, Dad, we have to find one of these. We saw it at the Grand Canyon. Obviously didn't want to pay the Grand Canyon price. So I'm like, we, I'm sure we'll find that in town, son. I'm sure. There's 16 stores in the 200-person town of Williams. I'm sure we'll find one in town. So we start walking the stores and going in to stores. And of course, they have thousands, if not millions of things to sell, but not. One, obsidian bow knife. <laughs> we go into store and into store and into store. He's getting a little discouraged, and I'm like, but it's going to be great. It's going to be great as soon as we find this. In fact, we'll just ask, because don't, we, don't, we don't have to scour. We can just ask. No, nope, you should try over there. No, nope, you should try over there. You sh- I can't choose joy if I can't find it. So finally, finally, we go back to the train station that took us to the Grand Canyon, and sure enough, there's about... 50 different choices. And in that moment of searching, there was this joy. See, joy is way, way, way more than a feeling. And it's much more than a possession, even as peculiar as an obsidian bone knife. And it's much more than a person, even a very, very cute new baby or grandbaby. It's this state. It's this reality of being that goes way beyond where we're at now. That's 
what joy is. That's what starts this conversation about joy. And, and joy is said, it's a result of having God's Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the spirits that it says. It's part of being a Christ follower because joy is an absolute essential of God's character. And if you look through the ministry of Jesus, if you've spent any time reading these books called the Gospels, you'll see joy all over the place. Jesus um, enters the scene in John 2, and he goes to a wedding, and it's an everyday occurrence of life, and there's joy amidst it. And then later, in the start of his ministry in, in Luke 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue, into the church, into this place that he would go year after year. He gets up and he reads the scriptures. He has joy reading the scriptures to the people. At later, when he calls his disciples, he pulls people from places that no one would think to get disciples, and he has joy in the midst of calling them. And then he heals people, and he raises people from the dead, and, and sinners, like immoral people, turn people that everyone is shocked that they would come to know Jesus, and there's joy in the midst of it. This is marks his whole life, and he says even at the end of his life, You'll, I want you to have the joy that I have. It says it in John 15, 11. Jesus is talking about this encouragement to his disciples, and he says, I want your joy, my joy to be in you, and your joy to be complete. Think about that word for a second, because they didn't get it, and so we'll talk about it, and I don't think we get it all the time. I think it's a lot more like the bone knife than the new baby, but joy marked the early church. These people that were persecuted, these people that had nothing, they prayed together, they had joy. They went into the synagogue, they went into the temple, they told people about Jesus, they had joy. People put them in jail, they had joy. People beat them, they had joy. They counted, they counted it joy to be suffering for Jesus. They went into prison, they got locked up, and they, what were they doing at midnight? They were singing praise songs of joy. It's like it went beyond anything where they currently were. No matter what the present hardship or circumstance, they had a state of being a reality that they could see that was far beyond where they were right now. So what does it mean for us to be completely full of joy? I think back to Thanksgiving as a, as a kid and as a college student and getting to eat seconds and thirds and sometimes then extra after that, and then them pulling out like another, oh, I forgot about this dessert. I don't know if you ever had that. I, I literally had that often. Like, oh, this one, I just forgot about it, brought it out. Um, and I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm so stuffed. Even in the extra pants, you know, slack, like I, there's no more room. I can't eat another thing. That's what Jesus is talking about with this complete joy, that we would be so full that there would be room for nothing else. Now, do you have that kind of joy? See, Jesus went on to talk about it after he said that he wants uh, the disciples' joy to be complete. He picks it up in John 16, which is where we're going to spend most of our time today. So if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. Jesus is encouraging his disciples at the end of his ministry, at the end of his life, the night before he's actually going to die. And he's giving them words of comfort. He's giving them words of encouragement with the Holy Spirit. He's giving them these words of, of forecast, if you will, of prediction. He says that I'm going to leave and you won't see me for a while, but then I'll come back and then you'll see me. And they're like, what? 
What is he talking about? And they actually go back and forth for a little bit about not understanding what he's saying. And so Jesus sees that they want, sees that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me again? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn as the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. So a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, and when the baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that the baby is born in the world. So it is with you. Now is your time for grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. So, Allison Ryan, Ryan was on our leadership team the last two years. You guys have a new baby last week. Um, and, and I heard, I mean, she's precious. I heard that labor was like 60 hours for you. So I just did a little math yesterday because I didn't want to do it on stage. But that's like two and a half days. And, and Jesus says that, um, that a woman will forget the pain when the baby's born. So do you remember any of those 60 hours? Oh, really? None? Just because there was no? All right. That's, that's great. That's great. You guys have a new baby. Yeah, it was, there was a lot of pain for you, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, walking the halls, anything like that? You know, massaging the back? How, how's your body? Okay. See, I remember uh, my, my babies, um, and because I had to do a lot of work, right? Um, I was the coach, you know, I was the coach, so I, want, I wanted to have a whistle, I wanted to have 70s gym shorts, Michelle, like, my wife knocked me down for that, but my, my point, like, they said, your, your goal is to help her, and so I pictured, like, a third base coach, you can come in, going home, let's go, yeah, and, and no, it's actually to distract the woman from the, the discomfort, because they don't like, I don't know, they have this thing against using the word pain, right, like, this discomfort that you might be experiencing, and, and so you're supposed to take these deep cleansing breaths. So we practice like all these different kinds of breathing. And it, it kind of hit me. I don't remember which baby it hit me at. That like Michelle has breathed her whole life. How is my coaching going to help in her breathing? And then one of our babies got stuck. Like the last one. And like he came out really way uglier than yours. I mean just like <laughs> completely mutilated ear. He was in the in the birth canal, and I'm like, Michelle, do you remember that? And she's like, oh yeah. <laughs> I asked her to make sure so I wouldn't be lying. But Jesus is saying that, that women will forget the pain. So some do, some don't. So is, is he lying or, or what? See, this is where I think we start. The point that Jesus is trying to make is that the joy of producing life will far outweigh the pain of giving birth. It's like, it, yeah, it's going to start with pain, but it's going to end with joy. That when we go through our life, and, and this was absolutely true for Jesus, that, that authentic joy is completely compatible with pain. I know that might not make sense, but, but think about it for just a few minutes. Jesus says that, or the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus that, that let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the trailblazer of our faith, the one who starts it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider this, who abs- you know, when you go through hard times. And, and so for Jesus, he endured the cross. He lasted through the cross. Why? For joy. He scorned the shame of that death. Why? For, for joy. He sat down at the right hand of God, the Father, for joy. And what, is, what are we supposed to experience? Joy. This is not some kind of a, a personal happiness in our present situation. It's not a life free of pain. It, it means that, that there's no hurt and there's no pain or, or shame or guilt. There's none of that that can take our joy away when it's offered as a gift of grace through the purchase on the cross of Christ. This joy goes way beyond whatever you're facing, and some of us are facing tough stuff. See, it's this ability to find pleasure and satisfaction from just being in relationship with God. And, and for some of us, that might be hard to fathom. If we're honest, we, we wonder if God would want to actually spend time with us, just hang out with us. But I don't have much to offer God. You're God, and I'm not. See, but God wants to give us blessings. I mean, this author that I really, really respect, Lewis Smead, said that if we miss out on joy, we miss out on the very reason we're alive. It's not optional. It's not like the icing on the cake. It's the whole thing. Now, we can read reports of what seems like terrorism attacks in Tennessee, and we can read stories of what seems like senseless violence in, in Lafayette, Louisiana. But we've also got to acknowledge that, that just according to two years ago, at least for the CDC, that, that the, leading co- the second leading cause of death between 15-year-olds and 34-year-olds, two different age groups, is suicide. It's number three, three for... 10 to 14-year-olds. It's number four for 35 to 44-year-olds. In, in a country that's supposed to, like, that everyone else wants to come and live in because of the opportunities. So we see this, this pain in the world because, because joy is part of God's character. So, so if we miss out on joy, we miss out on the very reason we're alive. And yet, Joy is really elusive and not automatic for us. And it can certainly be lost. We see it in the world. What about people who love Jesus? So this guy named Frank, Frank Lake, um, as I was doing some research on this, in the 50s and 60s, he was a Christian psychiatrist, and he actually worked um, in World War II as an Indian medical service person, so he was a doctor, and then he went to school again to get educated because of all the people he was seeing. He longed to be in missions, and so he ended up helping missionaries. And as he's working with these people who love God that were super fired up about serving Jesus, they would, they would leave England, and they would go to difficult places. Sometimes they would go to India, where he spent some time. Other times they would go to other places. And, and he would see them off and send them off with such expectation. And then just a few years later, they would get super discouraged and, and even resentful and bitter. And they would, they would come home burned out 
because they dried up. And he's like, but these people love God. It's supposed to be different than the things I see in the world. And it wasn't. And so he started devoting his life to studying it. So if we see pain in the world that, that people lose their joy, obviously from the suicide statistics, and we see pain among people who love Jesus who lose their joy, what about you and me? Is there something that, or someone, that's stolen your joy? John 10.10 says that, Jesus says the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come to give life and give it to the full. The enemy of God wants to steal the joy of people who love Jesus. I don't know if you know that. Sometimes I think I had more joy at the beginning of my faith than than sometimes I experience now, and I forget that there's an enemy of God who wants to steal my joy. Because if I can make, if, if I live the good news as bad news, then it's not good news. King David, one of, the, one of the people that we look to in our faith, that people have looked to throughout the years, said, God, bring me back to this point where I, I get joy from understanding how you rescued me. Like, restore the joy of your salvation in me. Make my spirit willing to obey you, Psalm fifty-one, twelve. If that's your prayer, know it can come back. Joy is not something that is lost forever. Like winding up at the very same place you start on a search for a bone knife, that it's there and offered, and we'll see it. See, when Frank Lake thought about how these committed, excited Christ followers would lose their joy, he studied and reflected Jesus. As he reflected on Jesus and the life of Jesus, he actually worked with a theologian who's pretty cool named Emil Bruner, and they discovered that though Jesus experienced this pain and rejection and hostility and opposition in his life, he never got burned out. He never got dried up. And then when they studied the pattern of his life, they noticed a very different pattern than the people that he was seeing, even these people who loved God. Their pattern over here was completely different than their pattern over here. And, and what he found is that Jesus never, ever responded out of hostility or anxiety. He never responded with cynicism. Never got sarcastic. In fact, his motivation never fizzled out. This is good news. At least it is to me. And so what he found was there was this rhythm of God's grace flowing in and out of his life. Now, he called it this dynamic cycle. This other guy named Trevor Hudson wrote a book. He called it the cycle of grace. I'm going to call it the rhythm of God's grace. But whatever you call it, like it's absolutely essential that if we want to be these people that believe in the resurrection, that, that live the good news that we want others to know, then, then it matters where we start. So today, we're just going to look at this cycle and we're just going to look at this first place of where we start. It's the rhythm, uh, I think we have a graphic of it. It's this rhythm of God's grace. If we want to be people who live the rhythm of God's grace, then we've got to accept God's grace. I mean, that's this first stage. Acceptance, which means accepting accepting that God loves me and chooses me. And then it moves to sustenance. 
the sustaining strength of living in relationship with God. And then it moves to significance where we're a sign because of who we are. And then it moves to fruitfulness or achievement, what, what God wants me to do. But, but it matters very much where we start. Do you start at acceptance? See, Jesus, for him, they start, his, his life starts with acceptance. Obviously, he's born into the world, much like this little girl's born into the world. And when his ministry begins, some of you know the story from John 3, um, the end of John 3. When his ministry begins, he is baptized. As he's baptized, there's this voice he hears. It's described by the writer as this dove coming down from heaven and this, this invisible but audible voice to Jesus that says, You are my son, who I love with whom I am well pleased. This is where acceptance starts. You are my son. That's his identity. He accepts that identity. And I love you. That's this value, this worth. And then with whom I am well pleased. That's this delight. I love you. I'm well pleased with you. That's where joy starts. That's where acceptance starts. And this is the cycle of grace. And it comes before achievement. Because see, the other way, this is what this guy found with these other people who said they love Jesus. It started with, what do I want to achieve for God? What do I want to, like, what these fruitfulness things? Because if I can achieve for God, if I can work for God, then, then I can get, then I can feel accepted, or then I can feel significant. If I achieve things for God, I can feel significant. If I feel significant, that'll give me some identity, and then I'll, that'll prove my worth, and if that proves my worth, then, then I can be accepted. That'll sustain me because I'm accepted. Do you see how? Maybe it's just me who has a really hard time with that, but Frank Lake found 50 years ago, 60 years ago, these other people who love God had a hard time with it. The religious people certainly had a hard time with it. There's this thing I've got to do and this thing I've got to do and this thing I've got to do to, to make sure that I love God. But if that's the case, if we start with achievement, then getting to acceptance and thus joy can be lost at any moment. Any moment of failure, any moment of pain, any moment where we can't reach it because of what we've tried to do. It's exhausting. It's draining. And then for many people, it goes to the quick fix. I know I need sleep, but I'll just drink caffeine because that'll, that'll get me up and, and then I, rather than change my life so that I have enough sleep. Or, or um, I'm going to eat fast food instead of home-cooked meals because they're, they're quick, they're easy. I'm going um, to choose sex over intimacy because... That's easier to get there. And, and for some reason, we must think we have to earn God's grace. I saw a video um, called The Money Tree. And I want you to take a look at it. And I want you to think about the obstacles that you face, that I face, but the obstacles that come up in your life that make you resist accepting God's grace. Hey. 
Shocking. Chicago. People just too busy. People who think it's not for them. Maybe someone who thinks they don't deserve it. What are the obstacles to accepting God's grace? See, this guy David in Psalm 51, he was someone, yes, who's considered great in the Bible, but at the same time, David murdered the husband of the woman's, uh, of the wife that he committed adultery with. And that 
was something that God saw. And when a man of God, another person who spoke for God, approached him on it, he ran to God. He didn't run from God. He ran to God. And he starts with this. He said, Psalm 51.1, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. God, because of your great compassion, blot out my stain of my sins. Have mercy on me, O God. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. See, David, he ran to God because he didn't have to, he didn't have to wonder if God was good or if God was evil. Because I think sometimes that's our problem. He just ran to God and he knew he was a sinner. He accepted that fact, but he also accepted the fact that God was good, that God loved him, and that God would listen to him. And he would listen out of his grace and his mercy. See, sometimes we talk about accepting Jesus. If you haven't accepted Jesus, it's a good, it's a, probably the most important decision you can make in your life. But sometimes we need to remember that Jesus accepts us. That he went to the cross and scorned at shame for the joy of bringing us back into relationship with God. What is one of your obstacles? Is it the fact of how you view God? Do you think that you don't deserve his mercy because God is going to withhold it like we sometimes withhold it? Oh, you did this to me, so I'm going to do that to you. Or do we think that mercy means that God's going to just do whatever he wants? Like, we can do whatever we want because God's going to just be merciful. We, we have the wrong view of God. Neither of those are true. God gives us mercy, not because we deserve it, but because that's who he is. That's part of his character. He's a merciful God. He's full of compassion, and he loves us. He loves us. John says, my, Jesus says, my joy will be in you, and my joy will be full in you. But he starts right before that, and he says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remained in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. He says, remain in my love. He doesn't say remain in applause of other people for a job well done. He doesn't say remain in, in the achievement. He doesn't say remain in thinking constantly of people like you. He doesn't say remain in your title or your education or your status or your money. No, he doesn't say remain in that. He says remain in my love. And when Jesus did that, and he did that throughout his life, regular rhythms of it, he did each thing that he achieved, he was able to do with joy because it wasn't about the results in, in per se of what other people thought. If people accepted his teaching or rejected his teaching, Jesus had joy because he knew who he was, he knew what God had called him to do, and he just did that because that was part of his rhythm of this grace that started with accepting, and then our joy can never, ever be stolen. Think about little Autumn. I think we have a picture of Ryan with Autumn. Isn't that a great picture? Thanks for the picture. I'm, I'm pretty confident that that's delight. Is that safe to say? Now, think about what Autumn did to earn that delight. 
he just loves her. Because she's his daughter. He didn't do anything. She didn't do anything to deserve that love. In fact, if you think about it, on the day you were born, the day people celebrate, at least someone probably celebrates your birthday at some point, even if it's just a happy birthday on Facebook. Other times, it's more elaborate than that. Think about what you did to deserve that. Nothing. You were born. And Autumn is actually cute, but most of us, as someone way more wiser than me put it, think about it. You were never more incompetent on the day you were born. You were never slimier, uglier, weaker, slower, had a lower IQ, less coordinated, and a bigger nuisance than on the day you were born. This is just a fact of life. In fact, a birthday is accepting grace. What would it look like for you to live your life this week accepting grace, living in this rhythm of God's grace, just remaining in his love? It, it could look like a faith walk, going outside and, and appreciating God's creation. It doesn't have to feel like a spiritual discipline of a drain. It could be just depending on God for what you need that day. It, that would be a prayer. God, can you, can you engage with me today and live through me so that I might bless others? That would be a great prayer. It could be regular worship where we're spending time together reminding ourselves who God is and who we are. Jesus did this regularly. In fact, he celebrated regularly. The Jewish people had seven festivals, like huge parties, huge festivals every year. Do you know, I was thinking about like, how many do we have in America I don't know, three or four, like Super Bowl, 4th of July, Halloween, and maybe Christmas or Easter. Like, I'm only partially kidding, but they had seven festivals to celebrate and party. I mean, Jesus partied for the regular stuff. Weddings. Actually, one time at a funeral, but that was probably because he raised the person from the dead. But in the daily life, he partied, in fact, he partied so much that people call them a drunk and a, gl- a, a glutton and a friend of sinners. I was just thinking about what if we partied with such godly intention, but we partied that hard that people accused us of being drunk, of being gluttonous, and of being a friend of people who are so immoral. Man, I could, again, with all godly intent, I could get behind that. In fact, I think God is calling us to be more celebrative. To live in joy and to not take ourselves so seriously. We're going to celebrate as a church being five years old in a few, few weeks. And if you count the unofficial. And so to do it, let's just learn how to celebrate. Let's talk about what it means to celebrate. Let's start a series on celebration. Because as a church, we can be known by our love and, and our joy, even in the most impossible circumstances. That would be good news. That would be something that people would like. That would be a life worth living. And so, what practices do you need to see as gifts from God, like holding a newborn child? Is it prayer? Is it walk? Is it reading your Bible, knowing that God is saying words of affirmation to you and encouragement to you? or fixing your mind on what is 
true and right and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy. Just take a moment as the band comes up and think about living in God's grace, starting from this place of acceptance. And ask God where your joy meter is at. Are you full? If not, why not? Because God just loves you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder or this new teaching maybe that, that you loved to have a good time. But more than just a good time or more than just a happy feeling, God, you had this deep sense of joy and you still have this deep sense of joy and you long to share it with us. I pray that we would be people who do it and live it and it wouldn't be a burden and it wouldn't be a drain but it would just be receiving life, like breathing. We love you. Amen.